Hello and welcome back to Take 97, a film podcast with me, your host, David Ingram. On today's episode, I shall be diving deep into a brand new cinematic release from the mastermind that is writer-director Edgar Wright, who, for anyone who missed our episode on Edgar Wright, the 50th episode of the podcast, please go back and check that out because we, me, myself and Sean Harris, my special guest on that episode, we really enjoyed discussing his filmography and what we love about his work in preparation for Last Night in Soho, which is the latest work of him and quite frankly I have been so excited to see this film come to fruition literally I saw when I saw the first trailer for it I was literally so excited for it the tension was palpable I was like oh my god this looks so cool and then on top of that I'd heard things about it and obviously it it got closed down the production halfway through because it was or quite a way through anyway because of the fact that it was during the COVID-19 pandemic like the outbreak of it at the beginning All of that stuff affected the production and it really, to be honest, you wouldn't know that any of the COVID stuff was going on really because I think they got the majority of the stuff done or most of the shooting done before they completed the film. But the film itself is a, I mean, you can describe it as a psychological horror film, psychological thriller, horror film, kind of. The tagline of this film sums itself up perfectly, a murder in the past a mystery in the future. Now, just to give you guys a quick rundown, the film stars Anya Taylor-Joy, who anyone who knows The Queen's Gambit and has seen that Netflix series, uh, you'll know Anya Taylor-Joy from that. She plays a character called Sandy, who's more specific to the 1960s segment of the film itself, because the film is told across two decades, the mid to late 1960s, and the present day. And in the present day, we also have Tom Zim McKenzie, who plays a character called Eloise, or Ellie Turner, who's a aspiring fashion designer and a fashion student at the time of this film, during the events of this film. Uh, she's moved to London from Cornwall Way to study fashion and in the hope to, like I said, become a fashion designer one day. And, you know, it's really nice, actually, because the film itself, before we get into details about other people involved and break this film down without any spoilers and then some more spoiler based bits later i do think that this film is very much a love letter to it is a love letter to soho itself but you know london as a whole seeing london for the first time as an outsider as someone that doesn't live there and has sort of idolized it for ages and then you see it and everything's all big wide and amazing and just all out there and that is perfectly told cinematically through the story as well through the perspective of Ellie. For anyone who recognises Tom Zim McKenzie, you might not know her name, but you might know her face. And when you hear her speak, she is the girl who played... I, I can't remember the, the the girl's name, but the girl, the Jewish girl who was hiding in the attic cupboard in Jojo Rabbit in Scarlett Johansson's house. She did a really cracking job in that and conveyed a very sweet, endearing performance amongst her fellow cast members in Jojo Rabbit and I think really hit home that message you know and the the warmth of friendship between two young kids in such a dark time in World War Two, relating to the Hitler youth I think Thompson McKenzie was a brilliant sort of shining star and rising star in that respect and she's definitely taken 
leaps and bounds since then. It's only been a matter of a couple of years, I think, but she's done a massively great job in this film, I feel. Although, I would probably argue that Anya Taylor-Joy did the better job of the two of them, but we'll get into that more later. Other noteworthy people to note in this film, we've got Matt Smith, so for any Doctor Who fans out there, the 11th Doctor, he is playing a character called Jack from the 1960s segment of the film. And we also have the late Dame Diana Rigg, who is no longer with us, obviously, anymore. Rest in peace, Dame Diana. But this was one of her final performances, along with, I think there was a role in the first series of the new All Creatures, Great and Small. But this was one of her very last performances to be shown and presented to everybody. And to be honest, you think, oh, normally when people of a certain stature like Diana Rigg was, you think, mm, you know, they're probably only in it for a little bit or something like that. But she actually plays such a crucial, like, I mean, I can't even say crucial role. She is a central character. Like, I, I feel that's the one thing I will say about the script for Last Night in Soho, that even the small guest appearances, like by big name stars like Diana Rigg, they are made to feel like main characters in their own right they have their own moments throughout the film because she plays she simply plays miss collins the landlady of ellie turner when ellie moves out of her student uni housing and goes into this let apartment in soho itself and she goes there to escape the sort of the overwhelming nature of living in a student house with her fellow peers and people on her course who she doesn't actually really get along with and we get to see that in the opening of the film this sort of toxic atmosphere of uni life and what it's like if you're a bit different from everybody else and a little less shouty and over the top as certain people which you get to see exemplified in some of her fellow classmates the main point being is though diana riggs character she sort of like as it acts as an anchor then should we say for when ellie moves out and sort of is the gatekeeper then for Ellie's independence then she's there she's letting the room out this classic vintage room above her flat which Ellie absolutely adores because as we discover from the opening of the film Ellie adores the 60s she adores everything about it uh, style music especially you know fashion above all else because she is a fashion student and the music of the 60s is so imbibed into this soundtrack. I'll get into that a bit later. But finally, other people to sort of note as well. Terence Stamp uh, plays a character called Lindsay. I'll get into that more later on, who he is, my thoughts and feelings on my theories as I was watching the film, but I'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, other things just to note really as well, for anyone who hasn't seen the film, the premise is it's a psychological thriller slash horror film mystery kind of film set in the 1960s and the present day and the idea really is it explores so ellie can she has dreams and visions and she goes back to the 1960s especially particularly when she moves into this upstairs apartment with diana riggs character uh, every time she goes to sleep at night she has dreams and visions and she it's like she time travels back to the 1960s but no one else can see her but she appears in mirrors and reflections and the opposite sides of the room and sometimes you know the audience themselves we will see her sometimes when we see Anya Taylor-Joy's character so they'll swap places quite frequently so it's like Anya Taylor-Joy and Tomsin McKenzie are one in the same person or tied together in some respect that's what we are introduced to 
in the opening of the film when the time travelly stuff ends up happening. But yeah, the film opens up with, you know, quite a simple, cold open, really, just sort of like bare, basic build-up, really, of a character learning about Ellie. We go back in time to the 60s, and then all hell breaks loose from that point on, and that's the basic premise of it, really, is that Tom's and Mackenzie has this ability to sort of tap in to the 1960s, and she, somewhere along the line, then discovers something very dark and mysterious, and she makes it her job to find out what really happened, particularly after one nasty encounter she has in one of her visions with a particular character. The film itself is, like I said, drenched in style so much. The 1960s setting, so the cars, the, you know, the neon-drenched, grungy lights of Soho in the 60s, the look of it is just amazing, and the dance hall, like the club, the, um, I think, I believe is like set, like set in the old, I think it's an Empire Cinema now, and like Edgar Wright actually picked out a real cinema, so it's got like the marquee's got a big massive poster for Thunderball, James Bond Thunderball above it, and I just think, what a way to introduce, you know, the man of pop culture cinema and pop culture references, he gets a James Bond reference in there from just as the new James Bond is coming into the cinemas as well. I just think, you know, that's clever marketing, really clever writing as well, and creative direction from Edgar Wright there, but I love the fact that the aesthetics of it and the look of everything, that's sort of how I would initially review it without going into the spoiler territory, but I feel like it's a love letter to London in the 60s, uh, more than anything, the music as well. I have to point out, the like, before we go into the plot details, Last Night in Soho it is the title of the film, but also it's the name of a song by Dave D, Dozy, Beaky, Mick and Titch. I hope I've said those names correctly. Apparently, there's so I keep seeing it literally written everywhere that apparently Quentin Tarantino had was having a conversation with Edgar Wright and saying, Last Night in Soho is the best title song for a film that has not been made yet and obviously Edgar Wright took it upon himself to do that so we get to enjoy Last Night in Soho. That song itself particularly is only really used towards the end of the film in the credits specifically but I really feel that you listen to it on its own and it's got very eerie echoey vibes which if you've seen the film then you'll understand like it's kind of a nice parallel because of that old 60s sound and the recording of it that it makes it sound eerie and ghostly then in some respects and ghosts is something that we do kind of touch on during the premise of the film and other things i'd like to point out there's Scylla black i think you're my world anyone who had a heart so many good songs there and also the song by petula clark downtown which is covered to great amazing quality by anya taylor joy it was released online along with a little montage of like clips from the film that basically from the trailer doesn't really give anything away so you can find that on youtube somewhere but i genuinely think that it's her voice as well it really gives that haunting aesthetic and last night in soho can mean so many things when you think about the title and you hear that name said is it a ghost story is it a murder mystery is it a horror show could be anything really that you could imagine with the title like that but at the end of the day it is all about that ghostly echo of the past. The past is an echo, and echoes ripple, and they still exist to this day, and it's all about remembering them and keeping in with the memories. I'm going to now basically go into spoiler territory here, because 
I can't explain any more and talk about my thoughts and feelings about the film without going to spoiler territory. So if anybody hasn't seen the film, please pause this episode now and come back to it at this exact point once you've seen it and let me know what you think afterwards because I genuinely feel like you can't talk about this movie without going into the plot details. So let's break it down from here. You have been warned. Spoilers ahead. So... The story starts off with Thompson McKenzie's character of Ellie Turner. She's moving from Cornwall to London to study fashion. You know, we get introduced to this lovely, luscious sort of opening sequence with music from the 60s. We're introduced to the fact that this girl loves the 60s. Her bedroom is plastered with stuff from the 60s. And she, this whole sequence at the beginning, she's dressed up in this 60s dress that she's made and stuff that she makes herself and we get introduced to the fact that she's a very creative character and the elegant typography of the words last night in Soho it just kind of is is very understated because it's I think it's white and it's very you know thin lettering as well like typography and it just makes you feel like you're watching something completely different like you don't think you're going to be watching something that's like really horror based then or any excitement or psychological based trips you're watching something that looks quite tame and quite coming of age then so we see this girl it's quite classic drama stuff stuff between her and her nan we learn a little bit about her character so the fact that her mum's died and she sees her mum and we see a reflection of her mum in the mirror but she's not there because she's died prior to the events of the film and we learn that ellie sees her mum as a ghost and she gets visited by her frequently or has done in the past um, but hasn't for a while she says until she's about to move away and she gets accepted into the London College of Fashion or whatever it's called the University in London and then we get this miniature sort of coming of age thing where I do love it as one of my highlights is the way that how simple it is but how good it comes across when you see Ellie traveling so her journey to London from Cornwall to London and you see you know that amazement that you know the way everything's shot she's on a train she's on a bus she sees all these things and the amazement in her eyes is just captured perfectly on film and I think Tom's and Mackenzie's sort of wonder that she has about her in her eyes and her face it's just perfect for the big screen as well it was a treat to watch I do think that afterwards I don't know it it felt very you could have cut down on it but I suppose you wouldn't feel as sympathetic towards Ellie if you didn't see her struggle with her peers and the fact she doesn't quite like to go out and drink and she's not one of those type of girls she very much likes to stay inside listen to her 60s music and maintain a sort of a very quiet reserved measure of herself then shall we say then the real fun starts when she moves out like i said she moves into this flat which is advertised she sees advertised on a notice board at university and it's this lady miss collins who then lets this room out to ellie and she says oh it's a bit old-fashioned i won't change it kind of thing but ellie's obsessed with the 60s so she doesn't mind naturally and it's really from that point onwards that we really get to see the Edgar Wright style come out and the fact Edgar Wright's homage or multiple homages to the 60s as I mentioned before I think so I love the train journey and everything that 
the wonder of Ellie and her amazement at London when she first goes there. But then the next bit that sort of tops it for me is that moment where she puts on a record, she goes to sleep in this lovely vintage room. It's um, You're My World by Cella Black. It's got those classic Burt Bacharach strings in the background. And I just, you know, if you love 60s music and that kind of stuff, you will absolutely adore this. Like, the way it creeps in and all of a sudden she's down this long, dark alleyway lit up by a bit of, like, a street light of some description. And then she comes out the other side and she ends up in the 1960s. We see that lovely vista, that shot, that lovely shot of the Thunderball marquee on what is the Empire Cinema just off of Leicester Square in real life. That cinema actually still exists. I've actually sent a poster for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood there, and it is a very impressive billboard, I have to say. And I think Edgar Wright actually even visited that and took a picture of Last Night in Soho, (laughs) the poster on top, uh, to match it up with the still from his film. But I do think that is the ultimate way to bring your audience in of, look, you're in the 60s. And I think the pacing of that scene is really good. Because again, you follow the film and everything through Ellie's perspective and the way she sort of looks around in amazement, like she's in heaven, quite literally in some respects, really, because it's, you know, this film has ghost elements to it. So a slight heavenly atmosphere to it with you know the sound of you're my world Cilla black is amazing and then the fact we actually see a depiction of i don't know the actress's name but we see someone who she's basically miming to Cilla black but we see her present in this club which tom zim mckenzie goes into and then we we then see the reflection of ellie is not quite as it seems and it turns out to be anya taylor joy's character of sandy and then we switch to suddenly seeing Sandy in person and we keep flipping for this entire sequence between the two of them or we if we see them in the same frame at the same time there'll be a mirror there and someone in the real world someone in the mirror it's quite interesting to see how it works I really want to see how they did that I don't know how they did that where they actually had Tom's and Mackenzie there but like mirroring every movement that she did that was must have taken you know real good practice to sort of nail the little movements and nuances to really nail it. We get introduced to the character played by Matt Smith, whose name's Jack. We discover he becomes like the boyfriend partner character to Sandy, and he essentially pimps her out. That's the thing of this. I just think that the film really, it's its a tale of modern times of a woman standing up for herself. And this is why I say, so spoilers ahead, guys. In this film, we learn that Anya Taylor-Joy's character we think initially she's been murdered. So we see Ellie make several trips back to the past and she experiences this lovely relationship with Jack and Sandy. And she even gets inspired so much that she has to go and get herself a new hairdo. So she dyes her hair blonde. She goes out and buys really expensive vintage clothes to dress just like Sandy. And she starts making this dress in her uni work to sort of replicate the first vision that she had. And that really doesn't make the story sound that exciting, but it's when the moment that it really picks up is when Sandy gets murdered in one of the visions that Ellie sees. And we see that how Matt Smith is this horrible ogre-like presence, and he's really horrible to her, and he's selling her out for everything that he can, and she doesn't want to. And I feel like the film from the beginning, Anya Taylor-Joy's character of Sandy, really stands out as that independent woman. She knows what she wants, 
and she knows how to do it. She has the confidence to go in and say, I can sing, I know what I can do. But then she ends up being taken advantage of, her talents wasted and used for other means, and then she ends up being pimped out to become a sex worker of some description. We see Sandy sort of claim her independence back in a way that we don't actually feel like you would normally anticipate then, shall we say. I think with Sandy's character, she goes in quite... I feel the arc is quite good, but at the same time, it's not. So we see her go in very good, knowing what she wants. She approaches the owner, she finds Jack, she finds a way to success. Then slowly she is tricked into thinking that she is everything to Jack, and Jack is just selling her to these to, to men, to other people, to be used. And she doesn't like that, and we see this sort of thing of her standing up and it's quite nice that Ellie is the parallel so Ellie is the fire of Sandy and you know Sandy is an independent woman but she's been tricked into being this woman that has been used by these men these horrible men whereas and Ellie is there witnessing all of this and she's kind of you know the backbone like the like the devil and the angel kind of thing she's the angel the guardian angel for sandy even though sandy doesn't really know she's there or at least we don't think she knows she's there which makes it more sort of interesting to see that ellie goes leave her alone and slowly we see anya taylor joy start to stand up for herself and it's kind of strange because the film puts you off thinking that you know anya taylor joy has gone down to such a low level that she ends up getting murdered and she becomes the victim. She ends up being murdered by Matt Smith in this vision and it's very because Ellie feels everything and starts getting bugged by these dreams and these visions then of Matt Smith's character pimping out Sandy and all these moments which make her feel uncomfortable and stress her out psychologically that I think we are very much put in the wrong direction shall we say, by the time we get to the end of the film. Because there's a sub-plot romance going on between, I can't remember the guy's name, I think his name's John, who basically is the very sweet, loving, caring lad that fancies Ellie from day one in the present day. And we see how he slowly makes his way into her trust, and we end up making this into sort of a mini sub romance plot and they end up even though diana riggs character miss collins says oh no no men after such and such a time in her lodgings we then see obviously ellie break the rules they go out on halloween night and they get all dressed up and they fall in love it's you know all really sweet stuff and it's the moment where they begin to get together romantically that then ellie witnesses something much more violent because again it's that parallel so whereas ellie is saying get out of that situation the independence of anya taylor joy is also present there but then you also get this rush of excitement and energy from the sexual nature of the relationship that was about to kick off between ellie and this guy and then at the same time another kind of force then of emotion a charge of emotion which is hatred and anger and that is exemplified in the attack on sandy in this vision of matt smith killing her and this 
bloody gory moment because compared to the rest of the film that is probably the darkest moment in the sense that you know the reason why yeah it's an 18 because of the fact that we've got some swearing here and there yeah so what that's 15 worthy but in the uk but then we also get this lovely (laughs) gory moment where all of a sudden she's being stabbed and we see this glass mirror sort of reflective ceiling where we get to see the murder take place as at the same time as Ellie experiencing her first time with a guy that she loves. And that's where things really kick off. And Ellie goes on a basic investigation to find things out. I think the investigation things is quite, it it wasn't drawn out too much. It was done at the right amount of pace. It wasn't undersold, but it wasn't overplayed either. I, I feel like the introduction was a big build up I think you needed that, but at the same time, I do feel that, you know, you could have cut down a little bit of the beginning down to get to the action quicker, because we didn't actually see much bloodshed, as it were, or, like, action then, shall we say, in, not in the traditional sense, but in a, some kind of way, until at least halfway through the film. So it's a bit of a slow burner to start with, but I think that the film really does deliver when you get to that moment where... Ellie's investigating and she starts slowly, slowly seeing ghosts regularly. And it's all these men with, uh, the the men with no faces, it's really creepy. And then we discover by the end of the film, I cannot believe by the end of the film that, you know, we sort of flip it on its head. The film in itself is, I don't know, you could argue that it's got some feminist undertones because, yeah, a woman standing up for herself. Because all these ghosts that Ellie keeps seeing and there's a lovely sequence which I really enjoy because she's running through the streets of London and no one else is aware of this but there's hundreds and hundreds of these like men faceless men then who are like grey ghosts and it's really creepy it's really creepy and I think it's done to great effect that you know she can see them but no one else can and then when we discover slowly like there's a moment at the end of the film where they just all of a sudden just go help me help us and then it turns out because we have seen we see like a little montage sequence of men coming up to Sandy basically after Jack's pimped her out and these are all the men all of the men that Sandy has slept with and has you know been taken advantage of by in this really dirty dingy part of London the thing that connects again Ellie is an aspiring fashion designer and Sandy was an aspiring performer and singer and they both had that kind of innocence about things and they were both tainted but the problem really is Sandy was tainted by the culture of the time and I think what this film does say is that yes we've come so far now so people like Ellie you know there are new pressures there are new things that taint them peer pressure and you know their peers generally being horrible and you know it's a more of a social thing in people of their own age whereas back in the 60s it's more of a peer not really peer pressure but a pressure to sort of do stuff to help you advance Ellie I think as a testament really says no I don't want to be pressured into being one of you being a horrible bitchy girl uh, to be able to fit in and do well on my course and be good socially I want to go about things my way enjoy my own personality and be who I truly am whereas Sandy appears to be fooled and tricked into being someone that she's not just to be the person she wants to be but then 
by the end of the film, we learn this big twist that actually she did stand up for herself. And this that's why I say this film has got a little bit more, not feminist feminist, but like more of a feminist angle as we get towards the end of the film. And I don't even think it's in such a way that it's in your face kind of way. I think it's quite a subtle nod to women are taking themselves and standing up for themselves. I mean, they've all, and it might even also, you could argue saying women have always tried to stand up for themselves, but it's a case of women are better together rather than apart. And in this case, a girl from the future helps a girl from the past. And we also, we also learn that there has been deception throughout this. It's really strange to see because, and this is the biggest spoiler of all, when that reveal came on screen, like there's a character called Lindsay, who's played by Terence Stamp, who's an old man who takes a shine to Ellie, who, when Ellie starts working at a pub to pay for the rent for the flat that she's living in, he seems very creepy. And Terence Stamp's performance, the way he walks, he looks very much like Matt Smith. And throughout the entire time, I was convinced that Terence Stamp's character was going to turn out to be an older version of Matt Smith. And that is exactly what Ellie thinks in this film, that he is the killer of several women, including Sandy, and he's still at large. And he, because there's one point he's referenced as being handsy because he was a bit of a ladies man back in the day, as legend had it. And we see how wrong we were because I was dead convinced that that was going to be Matt Smith's character in the present day as an old man because of the posture and the way he walked. It just looked so much like it could be an older Matt Smith, but it wasn't. We actually meet that character earlier on. There's a character in the sequence where he's actually credited on screen as punter number five. Uh, I think Sam Claflin, I think the actor plays him, is a younger version of Lindsay, and he's actually a copper. And to me, that just blew my mind. I, when they revealed it and they flashed back to him talking to Anya Taylor-Joy, I just couldn't believe it because, you know, the moment we realised that it's not him, because we, we kill him off at one point, old Terrence Stamp, you think, oh, yes, Matt Smith's dead, that character Jack's dead. You get to really fist pump because justice for Sandy because we think she's been killed by him. But then it turns out that he was a police officer and not the bad guy. And it just blew, I know it's really simple, but it blew my mind so much. I just, I enjoy the small pleasures like that. I really do. And then the, the, the biggest mind blow of all was the fact that, you know, we were told her name, Miss Collins's name at one point in brief. It, I think it was very fleeting. But then we get mention of the name Alexandra, which is a name that Sandy uses when she goes to all these different men. Oh, what's your name? Oh, so-and-so, Alexandra. That's a nice name. And the, the repetitive cycle of things going on is because of the repetition in that sequence. You don't pay attention to that small little detail. And it's when you get to the end of the film that the bomb drops that Miss Collins, Diana Rigg, was Sandy all along. And I just... It blows my mind so much. So so if anybody's listened to this and you didn't want the spoilers, I'm so sorry. But honestly, I was so mind blown by that moment. I turned to my girlfriend as we were watching the film and I just went, oh my God. Oh my God. That is, ah, uh, like it's not the biggest twist ever in the history of cinema, but I really, some people don't like it, but I really enjoyed it. I thought, you know what? Well, that's clever. 
we thought that Jack was the bad guy, and really he still is because he was pimping Sandy out and generally mistreating her as a human in that respect. And that was, you know, shows you the difference between the cultures of then and now, and also the similarities between then and now as well. But then I don't, we're kind of conflicted. I feel conflicted by the end of the film to sort of feel sorry for all the men and Jack's character to say, oh, Sandy murdered these men. But then we also really deep down the real bad guys are them so even though Anya Taylor-Joy as Sandy was the murderer you kind of don't feel bad about it you kind of just feel like oh she's she killed them they didn't kill her she got the better of them kind of thing and with that I believe that it's really good to sort of it's a revenge plot in a way without it being total full-on revenge like the last laugh was had by Miss Collins, Alexandra, Sandy. The audience, I feel, are very much connected. We've been connected to Ellie throughout the entire journey. You know, we feel sorry for her when she gets bullied by some of her classmates. We root for her when we want her to get with the guy. And we see this lovely, glorious 60s landscape and feel that nostalgia and love for the retro that she does and through the music choices that Edgar Wright has chosen as well, Last Night in Soho, Anyone Who Had a Heart, all the Cilla Black classics, and some of the other decent 60s tunes that were chosen, so many to mention. But then we're also conflicted by the end of the film. We're thinking, she murdered people, and murder is wrong, but did they deserve it? I think they did. And then it's that whole case of, like, the musical Chicago, with the whole musical number about they had it coming. It's murder, homicide but they did bad things and the women were taking control and at the end of the day you kind of end up siding with the murderer on this part it's a bit like any british fantasy really where we're so obsessed with the macabre we love stuff like jack the ripper and true crime stories and even true crime podcasts as well which have kicked off massively so many things that we love to secretly enjoy but we won't ever admit fully I think this film is for those kind of people. Anyone who loves that killer twist ending that's not M. Night Shyamalan, but a bit of a twist, loves to root for the rogue and the bad guy, or supposed bad guy in quotes. And I think if you enjoy the 60s, musically, stylistically, in a visual perspective as well, you will love this film. Edgar Wright has done such a good job in filming something that, could have easily looked very tacky, but I feel he's done it justice with the visuals. The visuals have been amazing. And that's why I think I'd rate it four out of five stars, purely because I feel there are some bits of the narrative that could have been tighter, not because of the twist ending or any of the red herrings or the mystery side of things, but I do think that the film itself visually is a masterpiece i love the blood drenched bits as well as the neon drenched bits of soho at night both present day and the 1960s the sequence where jack and sandy go for a ride and they run away from the club and they go for a ride in jack's car i love bits like that it's just so fun to watch i love the nostalgia and the retro that is last night in soho's vibe it's amazing so Honestly, I know I've just spoiled a load of that for you guys, but it's quick and fast-paced when it needs to be. A little bit of a slow burner to start with. Overall, four out of five stars, I would say, for that one. A brilliant cracking film. If you've got chance to watch it, and if you've sort of 
managed to make it through this review and you still want to watch the film, I would highly encourage anyone to watch this at the cinema. Even if you've already seen it already, go and watch it again because it's such a treat. And at the same time, I also think that even when you buy it as a home release, enjoy it because it is truly something that's it's only two hours just under two hours i think it's about two hours long so compared to marvel's eternals which i also went to see quite recently which i don't get why some people don't like it because i quite like it really to be honest it was again briefly that was a really good film but i do believe that eternals could have been much shorter and it would have been even more enjoyable whereas last night in soho i feel i think it was just the right amount of time for it so I'll leave you with that, guys. So if anybody wants to watch the film and hasn't and has skipped ahead to this point, please do watch it again or watch it for the first time. I think you will enjoy it. Even if you know the twist, I feel it's just looking for the red herrings. Each time you watch it, you'll learn something different and you'll be looking out for the little signs of, oh, that's a sign of that. And that's a little herring to that as well, little nod to that. But yeah, brilliant performances throughout from... I'd say Anya Taylor-Joy and Matt Smith do a brilliant job in this. Tom's and Mackenzie's okay, but she's, like, really the main character, but also a supporting character. Like, I feel we could have got more action from Anya Taylor-Joy, but at the same time, because of the nature of who she is, that would have probably ruined the surprise later on. So, honestly, guys, please, if you haven't, watch Last Night in Soho, and I can't tell you how much more I love that film, because it's just so so damn good that's all i have to say really on last night in soho um take 97 but i will just give you a quick nod though something exciting is happening next week uh an episode that's been recorded for quite some time now actually and it's only just been edited recently uh it is part two of the clockwork orange 50 years of ultraviolence celebration so it's a two-part pod series in collaboration with my friend Ace, who you may remember from the collaboration we did on his podcast for The Shining, and also uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood for my podcast as well. He's a cracking person to talk to, a genuine great friend as well, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear part two of 50 Years of Ultraviolence, the post-Ludovico segment of our two-part pod series. Uh, So part one, I believe, is already out now, so... Please go and listen to that on Films Unchained podcast with Ace and also me. And then once you've listened to that, please go and listen to part two, which will be out next week uh, on Friday at the usual time for our Take 97 listeners. And I can't wait to celebrate or at least conclude celebrating the 50 year milestone of A Clockwork Orange. I'm just excited to share that with you guys. So please tune into that one and I hope you've enjoyed my review and deep dive and just general excitement discussion of last night in Soho. Thank you so much for listening, guys. That's a wrap on Take 97, a film podcast, the last night in Soho edition of the podcast. And I will see you next time for part two of A Clockwork Orange, the 50 year celebration with myself and Ace from Films Unchained. But like I said, please do listen to part one, which is out now. So see you on the next episode, guys. And thank you very much for listening. See you later.